Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to look at your word and we pray that as we look at it now that you'll do a good work in us so that we might keep looking to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you haven't got it open to Matthew 4, we're looking at uh, verses 1 to 11. Well, on Monday, I bumped into a friend and uh, he was telling me that he recently um, had to deal with some people who believed that if you continue to repent of your sin, that you will avoid getting sick. I don't know what that does for you, but it made me angry. You know, hearing that sort of stuff really gets up your nose. I don't know if that, that's a good way to talk about being angry. But if you hear anything like that, then please don't fall for it. Now, of course, it sounds great. You know, there's no sickness. But how damaging and false. And something that's equally maybe distorts God's word is when people say you can attain to some sort of moral perfection. Now, they might give credit to where credit should be due to the Holy Spirit as the agent who brings them total victory over sin. But at the end of the day, this is deadly delusion. But I think what's going on for all these sorts of false teaching is that there's a genuine desire, well, I hope there's a genuine desire to describe what a victorious Christian life looks like. And I think that's a great question to ask. What does a victorious Christian life look like? Because as Christians, we do want to believe and we do know from the gospel that we are victorious. But what does a victorious Christian life look like? And I think it's not about avoiding sickness and it's not about being morally perfect, although you want to strive for that. So what does it look like? And I think Matthew chapter 4 helps us to answer that question of what does the victorious Christian life look like. And so as we enter chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, we come to a showdown. It's, it's a battleground that we've come to. It's Jesus versus the devil. And on the battleground for this showground, well, it's set in an idyllic place. Well, it's not really. It's the desert. It's the wilderness. That's the background for this battle. And we're going to look at what Matthew says about Jesus versus Satan. And it's there in verse 1, so let's have a look. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus versus Satan, ding, ding, round one. Here we go. Jesus is equipped with the Spirit of God. And what's the devil's choice of weapon? Well, it's temptation and it's a mighty fine weapon. But how does Jesus respond? Well, that's my first point. He entrusts himself to God in temptation. See, Jesus entrusts himself to his Father, knowing that even if he abandons everything to his Father, he will live. And as Jesus goes into this battle with Satan, we're reminded that Jesus doesn't go into it with a position of strength. Actually, he goes in disadvantaged. Have a look at verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, I don't want to, you know, critique Matthew's writing there, but surely that's an understatement. I can't go without eating for like 20 minutes, let alone 960 hours. Because that's what 40 days and 40 nights, I think, with my maths. But the reason why Matthew tells you that it's not hours, but it's days, is actually 
to invoke the stories from the Old Testament. There's something symbolic about the 40. You see, you're supposed to recall how Israel went into the desert, into the wilderness, and how they, were, they, they went into the wandering in the desert for 40 years. But the thing about Israel was that they failed. They grumbled. They sinned against God. Now, why does this matter to Matthew? Well, I think he wants us to see that Jesus is the true Israelite, that Jesus represents Israel, that he's actually, in some sense, fighting for Israel. And so in the back of our minds, we're thinking, will Jesus succeed where Israel has failed? And so let's have a look at how the battle kind of uh, ensues, uh, how Satan tempts and how Jesus endures. Now, it's good to be reminded of the context and it's key to look at what's just happened before. And the key thing is to remember that Jesus got baptised and that's important, I think, for two things. Firstly, he identifies with sinners. Not that he was a sinner, but he, he comes to identify with sinners. But maybe more importantly, Jesus comes to be baptised and what do you hear when he comes out of the water and the heavens open up? And God speaks. That's what you hear. And it's important. This is what God says to his son. He says, this is my son, whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Man, if, oh, what a, you know, every son wants to hear their dad say that, I think. This is my son, whom I love with him. With him I am well pleased. And for Jesus, well, it's totally deserved. But right from there, we know that Jesus is the son of God. I mean, God the Father has said it. And so it's not surprising as we enter into this battleground that that's actually where, where Satan will kind of point his weapon. It's not surprising that that will be the basis of Satan's attack on Jesus. Let's have a look at verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. See, did you notice how Satan starts? If you are the Son of God, you know, maybe you're not the Son of God. You see, the devil wants to create doubt because it'll create doubt for his identity, his purpose, his mission as the Son of God. It's like saying, well, if you're the Son of God, if your God is your Father, then why are you going without food? What kind of Son of God are you? Come on, show me that you are the Son of God. Make these stones into bread. Don't stay hungry. And you can see Satan is manipulative He's implying that Jesus is not the Son of God, that a Son of God wouldn't be neglected, but fed. And that's what Satan is tempting Jesus to do. He's tempting Jesus to use his power to serve himself, to mistrust God and to eat. But what does Jesus do? Well, he entrusts himself wholly to God. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Jesus' answer, it's simple. He quotes the scriptures. And what he's essentially saying there is, I entrust my life to God. I entrust my life to my Father, that he will sustain me, that he will help me to live. And he accepts that it's not God's will for him at this point to acquire food miraculously there, He's not come to feed himself. He's come to feed others. He will feed others later on. He will create bread later on. But that's not for himself because that's not what it means to be the son of God. 
Well, the second temptation, well, it's similar to the first, but instead the devil, he's tricky. He quotes scripture back at Jesus. And I think that's really shocking. The devil uses the Bible. Verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. See, Satan's asking Jesus, well, prove it, hey? Prove it if you're the son of God. You know, get God to save you. And, you know, the devil's half right in the way that he uses the scriptures because Psalm 91, which he quotes, is actually about the Son of God. But he's misusing it. So how does Jesus respond? Well, again, he entrusts himself to God. He hasn't come to save himself. He's come to save others. And so he totally entrusts himself to God and he therefore won't seek to test him. That's what we see in verse 7. Let's have a look there. Jesus answered him, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what is the devil trying to do in tempting Jesus? Well, I think it's this. Ultimately, he's trying to get Jesus to avoid dying on that cross. See, the whole point of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God is to not serve himself, but to take on the fate of Adam to take on the fate of Israel, the fate of sinful humanity and endure in our place these temptations that we succumb to, the suffering that we seek to avoid and ultimately death, our deserved death on that cross. One commentator puts it this way and I think it's beautiful. Jesus is committed to living off God's word, to trusting God completely without setting up trick tests to put God on the spot He is committed to loving and serving God alone. The flesh may scream for satisfaction. The world may beckon seductively. The devil himself may offer undreamed of power. But Israel's loving God, the one Jesus knew as Father, offered the reality of what it meant to be human, to be a true Israelite, to be Messiah. See, here we see Jesus keeps his eyes on his Father and so launches the mission to undo that age-old effect of human rebellion. Well, what does the Christian victorious life look like, just from a glimpse of what we've seen so far? Well, it's not moral perfection this side of heaven. It's not avoiding sickness or temptation this side of heaven. But it's this. It's entrusting everything to our Heavenly Father. And how you do that? By simply, and this sounds so simple, So easy, but it's so not that easy by simply receiving and trusting Jesus that he has won the victory. He has led the victorious life. It's not actually our victorious life, but it's Christ's life. That's the victorious Christian life. That's what it is. That's Christ. But more on that a bit later on. We'll go back there yet again. But can I ask you, what do you reckon the goal of the temptations are, of the devil's temptation? Is it just to get you to sin? You know, that's what he's trying to do, just trying to get you just to taste a little bit more, uh, do something a little bit more that goes against what God wants. Well, no. Yeah, sure, that's what happens. But he's actually doing something even more clever. He's trying to distract us, isn't he? I mean, that's what he did with Jesus. He's trying to distract Jesus 
from the way of the cross. He's trying to distract Jesus from the path of suffering, servanthood and death. See, the temptations we all face, sure, from day to day and at critical moments in our lives, they may look very different to what Jesus has done, especially you know, going hungry, maybe. But they have the exact same point. They're not simply trying to entice us to commit that extra sin. They're actually trying to distract us, to turn us aside from the path of following Christ and being his and servants. I think of it as like erosion. You know, erosion sort of happens a little bit over time. And as you maybe participate in sin, uh, maybe you don't see much happening as that happens. But after a while, you look back, you step back, and what do you see? You see the whole landscape has changed because of erosion that it's not anything like it was before. And so as we face that little erosion as we succumb to sin, it's trying to distract us completely from following Christ. That's what he's trying to do. But also I think uh, when when it comes to uh, what we see from here, what is the victorious Christian life? Well, I think it is a commitment to living off God's word in context. I mean, what did help Jesus to endure those sufferings apart from entrusting himself to God? Well, it was understanding the scriptures which helped him to entrust himself to God. And it's scary, I think, when you look at this, that the devil quotes scripture to Jesus. Just because you can quote scripture doesn't actually mean you're using it right. False teachers will quote scripture to you. False teachers will use the Bible. Bad preachers can tell you stuff from the scriptures and show you where it comes from in the scriptures. So what will help us in these situations? Well, it's got to be knowing God's word in context. And I think you've got to work out what's the overall aim of God's word. Well, it's not finding its fulfilment in us. It's not finding its fulfilment in our happiness or our success. But obviously, well, hopefully it's obvious that fulfilment in Christ, that's what gives you the context. So store scripture in your heart, but know how to use it in the context that it's fulfilled in Christ. We're going back to our passage, and uh, we'll go through our second point, and this will be much shorter. But the way Matthew ends this passage is to, again, to point to Jesus' victory on this battleground. Jesus wins by resisting the devil. So far, Jesus has been twisted twice, and he's resisted twice. And in the third and final temptation, well, we see Satan again trying to offer the easy way out for Jesus. Verses 8 to 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. What's the temptation here? Well, it's to avoid the cross again. Avoid the cost of giving up your life. And so here we have the world's appointed ruler in the devil versus God's appointed ruler in Jesus. The devil, manipulative, a liar, self-serving, death-bringing. And here the temptation is for Jesus to then bow to Satan. But in order for Jesus to win, in order for Jesus to dethrone Satan, well, it'll cost him his life. I mean, that's what it meant 
to not bow down to, to Satan. It, it was to go to the cross. But thankfully Jesus resists. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus will not compromise with evil. His heart is holy for God, his Father. And the result of resisting, well, he's vindicated, as we see in verse 11. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. See, Jesus, in entrusting himself to God, well, God comes through. The angels come, and they look after him. He wins by resisting. Now, this wouldn't be the last time that Jesus would battle against the devil. He would meet his tempter again and again and again. But in the scriptures, we'll see that the tempter will use his close associate, Peter. Do you remember that time where Jesus says those crazy words? But we know they're not crazy because he says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter's saying, don't go to the cross. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the incredible weight of anticipation of facing his, the anger of, of, of his father. And then at the, the cross, well, what do the religious leaders say to Jesus when they mock him, the priests and the bystanders? What do they say to Jesus? If you're really the son of God, get down from that cross. But ultimately, in his first victory, it's a pattern where Jesus resists the devil and it'll be a pattern until we see him dying on that cross. And I think that's what I want us to say is that Jesus is not just victorious in this moment but he is victorious because he has stayed on that cross until he has died. So to answer, well, what does the victorious Christian life look like? Well, it's easy to kind of work out, well, I want to look like the victorious Christian life but I think you're skipping a step there. The first step to any victorious Christian life is to ask you Do you believe that Jesus is victorious over the devil for you? That he actually endured the temptations for you? That he took on the devil for you? It doesn't matter how morally good or how godly. See, only Christ can be victorious over Satan. So do you trust Jesus? Because this is the greatest thing ever that you will see when sin, say, gets the better of you, It doesn't crush you. When you succumb to temptation, it won't destroy you. When the devil's lies seem too good to resist, it won't be the end of you because you've got a champion. That is Jesus. And you bank on him to triumph where you have failed. That is the victorious Christian life. That is Christ resisting temptation and being victorious, not for his own sake, but for our sake. That was what it meant to be the Son of God. Jesus resists temptation for us. He's lived on our behalf. And as your representative, he is our champion. He has secured our path from the wilderness, from that desert into the promised land. We cannot resist the devil by ourselves. Christ has been tempted for our sake. We do not put our trust in our own performance in the wilderness. Instead, we have confidence because of his performance in the wilderness. His victory is our victory and his victory gives us the sure hope of our promised rest and that will help us tread in this wilderness as we look forward to that promised rest.
See, if Jesus is your champion, then his victory is your victory. And that's the victorious Christian life. It's tied up with him. We may look like a bunch of losers, but we've won because our champion, Jesus, and we didn't even have to break a sweat. That's how good it is. But before you think of copying Jesus, because I think, well, that's when when you've got a champion, you want to copy him. Before you want to resist the temptations of the devil, like Jesus, remember he did it for your sake. Remember he resisted for your sake. And he secured that path into the promised land. However, it doesn't mean you just don't do anything. Jesus shows us what it actually means to be truly human, what it means to be a true Israelite, what it means to be the true people of God. And as the body of of Christ, the church, we seek to help each other resist temptation, to store up God's word in our hearts, to understand it, and to entrust our lives to God our Father through Christ. We will have to go through temptation We will have to say no to self and yes to service. We will have to suffer before going to glory. But we will remember that our path is secure because Jesus has won. And so, if you've trusted him, then he will get you through those temptations. There's no doubt about it, as long as we keep looking to the victorious one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you sent your son and that he didn't waver, that he didn't succumb to sin, he didn't succumb to his own self-desires, but that he was always faithful, that he was always seeking to do what was obedient, to worship you, and he did it for our sake. Help us, Father, to cling to Christ, the victorious one, And we pray that as we trust and cling to Jesus, we would also live out the victorious Christian life because of our champion, not because of our performance, but because of him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.